patients who have AKI are going to experience longer lengths of stay. They're going to have higher need for ICU resources and higher rates of morbidity and mortality. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Grit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Crit Podcast? Absolutely. Pete's Crit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We are working with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or on our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to add to the online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. We sure are, so please reach out. Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we're excited to have Drs. Archana Dar and Molly McGettrick with us. Archana is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Practicing Pediatric Intensivist here at Children's Medical Center and UT Southwestern in Dallas. And Molly recently completed her Pediatric Critical Care Fellowship training at UT Southwestern and is a current Pediatric Cardiovascular ICU Fellow at Texas Children's. Yes. And today is part one of a three-episode series. Today, we're going to introduce the topic of acute kidney injury, define high-risk populations in the ICU, and discuss ways not to miss this important diagnosis. Exactly right. Let's get right to the content. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on today's podcast episode on acute kidney injury. Let's just jump right into the content. So to get things started, how big a problem is acute kidney injury and why should we care about this? So acute kidney injury is, it's a big problem. It's a morbidity that we see in up to 30% of patients that are admitted to the PICU. And when you look at certain subpopulations, especially those who've been on cardiac bypass, it could be much higher, up to 50%. So it definitely is something that we need to know a lot about as we work at the PICU. And what data is showing is that patients who have AKI are going to experience longer lengths of stay. They're going to have higher need for ICU resources and higher rates of morbidity and mortality. I agree with Molly. I think it's a huge problem. And what makes it most concerning is that it does not announce itself. It's very subtle. One third of the ICU admits are at risk of AKI, but we often miss it. So I tell all the trainees to look for it. When you're watching the monitor, this is not a vital sign that's visible, but ask for the urine output and follow it serially throughout your shift in the ICU. I think it's a very important fifth vital sign to follow to identify AKI. I absolutely love the framework as a fifth vital sign. If you're worried that a patient is going to be hypotensive and tachycardic and you can't stop looking at their monitor, then you also are actively worried about their urine output. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. So whenever you work with Dr. Dar in the ICU, she will be asking you, why has this patient not peed in four hours? So we are definitely very cognizant here of urine output. Oh, good. Well, I like that. I think that I should do it better. So how do we define what exactly do we mean by acute kidney injury? 
I mean, globally, acute kidney injury is defined as a decline in kidney function from baseline over a period of seven days or less. Sometimes it can be transient, but when it doesn't return to baseline within 48 hours, we put this into the category of persistence. There have been, over the years, many different utilized classification systems for AKI. Right now, we use the Kodigo classification, but what we like about this one is it can really be used to define AKI in as short as six hours. I agree. We have to look for it within six hours if you have decrease in the urine output or rise in your serum creatinine, KDIGO, which stands for Kidney Diseases Improving Global Outcomes. It's a consortium which is focused on improving outcomes for renal diseases, whether it's acute or chronic. And they define it as short as six hours of decrease in the urine output. You have to be considering AKI. And we'll be sure to dive into those Cadigo guidance uh, later in our conversation. So first, let's kind of get some more background on the nuts and bolts of acute kidney injury. We all know about the classic categories of pre, post, and intrinsic renal causes of AKI. Do you guys feel like this is a helpful clinical framework in the ICU? I mean, yeah, I think in medical school, we're taught these buckets to really learn how to define what the different causes of acute kidney injury are. However, the underlying etiologies for critical illness admission, iatrogenic features can really all contribute to AKI. So essentially, our patients may not fall into one single bucket, but I think it does provide a good framework for which we can expand upon. So we know pre-renal is going to be anything that affects perfusion to the kidneys. Intrinsic renal is any salt directed directly at the parenchyma, the glomerulus, or the tubules. And then post-renal is really anything that's going to obstruct your urine flow. Yeah, and I think we see quite a bit of pre-renal in the ICU because there's impairment of perfusion to the kidneys very often in patients with shock. In the developing world, you often see it with hypovolemic shock secondary to profound dehydration, diarrheal illnesses. In our ICU, trauma. Hemorrhagic shock is often a very common contributor to a pre-renal insult. And then we should not forget our other causes of shock, which will lead to pre-renal insults. Intrinsic, I want to blame it more on us because it's often very often iatrogenic. Would you agree with that, Molly? Yeah, I would agree that iatrogenesis is a big cause of our intrinsic renal disease. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, a lot of the times we can't always avoid some of the agents that we're providing to our patients that are causing kidney injury, but we do have to be cognizant about it. And then post-renal, I think it's anything that impairs the renal output. And again, that is, I mean, urine output. And I think in the ICU, one needs to be cognizant of kinked or obstructed foleys, which we often forget. If you have a kinked or obstructed foley for hours at an end, you are putting the child at risk for a post-renal insult. Oh, absolutely. And unlike an intrinsic renal injury from antibiotics or medications, a post an obstructive renal injury is seems so preventable. I can imagine that that's very stressful. Absolutely. So and I think uh, to some extent, even the intrinsic renal injuries, especially those which are caused by use of certain medications together, the risk or the damage can be mitigated if you're cognizant of it and watching for it. Now, we can't avoid certain antibiotics, but we can avoid combinations. We can use dosing, which is more renal friendly. So there are strategies that can be put into place to mitigate the risk. Oh, absolutely. Let's dive into that more. What do you think about the common medications that are causing your intrinsic renal injury? And how do you think about those? So what I think about 
the common medications. First of all, I think of the big gun antibiotics. So vancomycin is probably the first one that comes to everyone's mind, but you also have to think about amphotericin, aminoglycosides, and sulfonamides. And most likely every patient who is septic or immunocompromised in the unit is probably going to be exposed to at least one of these medicines, if not more. And then you have your antiviral medications. So all of your ovirs, your acyclovir, gancyclovir, sidofovir, those are definitely going to be implicated in some kidney injury. Chemotherapy is also important. We see a lot of patients who have hematologic and solid tumor malignancies, and so we see a lot of AKI associated with these chemo agents as well. And then some other things that we like to think about are NSAIDs. So this comes into play when we have post-op patients or a patient who comes in with multiple drug ingestions. And those with rheumatic diseases who are on chronic NSAIDs, and they're interesting because they can cause injury via a variety of mechanisms. They cause acute tubular necrosis. They could also cause acute interstitial nephritis in some patients. And essentially, they block the action of prostaglandins, which autoregulate blood flow to the kidney and can cause a pre-renal AKI. So, you know, I always like to highlight the example because we're in the South it's 100 degrees in Texas right now, is you have the football player who's been outside playing all day, doesn't drink any water, all of a sudden he's cramping and then takes 800 milligrams of ibuprofen and there you go, you have kidney injury. I have to admit, we know that they reduce renal blood flow, but I forgot about the acute interstitial nephritis component and how that this is just a different mechanism, different pathway. I think in the neonates especially, we have to be very cognizant because most of them are on gentamicin, acyclovir, if there's concern for an infectious insult. And if they are in the cardiac ICU, often Toradol is used for pain control post-operative procedure or post-cath. And that's the perfect storm. You've created it. Sure. So we've covered already many of the common causes of pre-renal AKI, post-renal AKI in the ICU, and even touched on some of the important medications that cause intrinsic AKI. Are there any others that you might want to cover in the ICU? I think we did not dwell on the fact that intrinsic AKI may also be caused by iatrogenic hyperchloremic acidosis. I think most of intensivists now try to limit the use of normal saline. We try to go for plasma light or drinkers lactate as your maintenance fluids. And one of the reasons is the chloride content of normal saline, which has been implicated in quite a bit of evidence for causing ATN and thus intrinsic AKI. Yeah, I will say that I, I did not appreciate the role that hyperchloremia played in AKI until into my fellowship, but there has been a lot of evidence that has supported this. And now I think that's why many of us cringe when we hear about massive fluid resuscitation with normal saline containing fluids. And it's such a paradox too, because early in your career, you just want to hydrate as much as possible to protect the kidneys. But if you make them acidotic, you'll cause vasoconstriction and inflammation at the level of the kidney and then make the AKI worse, right? And so I think you want to be both a fluid steward and make sure that you're not dehydrating your patients. I don't know. It's clear as mud, I know. And I think we need to be careful. The sepsis guidelines talk about using normal saline or albumin for the initial resuscitation. So I think the verbiage in the surviving sepsis guidelines talks about using other solutions or other fluids, but it has not come out clear cut as a guideline. So most places do continue to use normal saline for resuscitation as well as for maintenance fluids. Yeah, it's definitely the norm here. 
So we've already talked a lot about how common AKI is in the PICU, and we've already mentioned that some of those sicker patients may be at higher risk. Are there any other special populations that you want to be more careful about monitoring for the development of AKI, maybe those cardiac patients? You're absolutely right. Cardiac patients are at risk for AKI for a variety of reasons, but other patient populations I commonly think of are those who've been on cardiac bypass, many survivors of cardiac arrest. Patients with sepsis are, you know, at risk for AKI for a variety of mechanisms. And then we briefly touched on this earlier, but hematologic and solid tumor malignancies. And I joke with the residents all the time, really any physician or nurse taking care of PICU patients is at risk for AKI. Sure. There was a study you wanted to mention, right, about this? Yeah. So funny enough, about 10 years ago, some investigators in London conducted a study that they named the PARCH trial, which stands for Prospective Analysis of Renal Compensation for Hypohydration in Exhausted Doctors. And so essentially, they looked at junior doctors in the ICU and compared their features to patients they cared for. And they found that doctors were more likely to fall into the risk category of AKI than their patients, and they were also more likely to be oligarchs. And so although we know much of this is due to the fact that we control our water intake, we may have time constraints preventing bathroom breaks, etc., the authors concluded that we should be more attentive to our own renal function and drink more water. Oh my gosh. They literally compared it to their patients. That is so funny. Yeah, they said that 22% of these doctors were oligaric, though if you've ever seen how hard the residents work in the PICU, it's probably much higher than that. Yeah, I think it's a big five that you need to watch out for in the ICU. Sepsis, post-arrest, hematologic malignancies, solid tumor malignancies, and then, of course, your cardiac population, which is special and separate. But that should really raise your antenna, and those are the patients that you really need to be monitoring your urine output. Oh, wow. So the big five, the list of the the most high-risk conditions, the sickest patients. The big five really need the fifth vital sign is what I tell myself when I see that patient come through. Well, let's dive into the cardiac disease more. What else should we know about our cardiac patients when it comes to the risk of acute renal injury? Yeah, so spend a few days in the CVICU and you'll see that kidney injury is a common discussion on rounds and it affects most patients with congenital heart disease and heart failure. And so they describe the connection between cardiac and renal diseases as cardiorenal syndrome or CRS. And although we think of it commonly as decreased perfusion to the kidneys, maybe because of compromised cardiac output, it really doesn't explain the whole picture. It's really a dynamic and complex interaction between volume status as well as neurohormonal factors and inflammation. On top of that, these patients have dysregulated sodium, homeostasis, water retention, and they often have inappropriate thirst for the amount of volume status they have which is, you know, I always find funny that every cardiac patient is always craving pickle juice and chips. And, you know, it's always a pain when you have to limit their volume intake and they're so thirsty, but their overall body is fluid overload. They also can have venous congestion and heart failure, which is going to decrease your GFR and further worsen your overall fluid overload and heart failure symptoms. So this cardiorenal syndrome has been well described in the literature and actually it's multiple different phenotypes, which are far beyond the scope of this talk. But in essence, it's associated with higher need for mechanical ventilation and overall mortality in these patients. It's something we really need to pay attention to. Wow. Five distinct phenotypes of cardiorenal syndrome. At least. We would love to return to that on a future episode. 
Mali, did you want to talk about the CSA AKI component? Because that is also something special that stands out in the cardiac population. Oh, so we're talking about for cardiac surgery associated AKI. So this is a, a separate phenomenon that our cardiac patients are likely to experience, especially in the post-surgical period. And so what cardiac surgery associated AKI is, is it's renal deterioration in the first 24 to 48 hours post-operatively. And this has also consistently been shown to be a marker of morbidity and mortality in these patients. And it's completely separate from the other causes of AKI that they may experience. And the reason for this CSA AKI is during bypass, blood flow to the kidney is non-pulsatile compared to your normal pulsatile cardiac output, and flow rates are overall reduced. So renal perfusion pressure is altered. The renal medulla is exquisitely sensitive and has limited functional reserve, so it's prone to ischemia and subsequent ischemia reperfusion injury. On top of that, there's also massive inflammation as your blood is contacting this large foreign body, which is the bypass circuit. You have hemolysis of red blood cells due to shear stress within the circuit, and then microemboli can form within the renal vasculature. You know, we mentioned this neurohormonal effect also comes into play as there's sympathetic nervous system activation causing activation of our favorite renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, while vasopressin release causes water retention. So we do watch our kidney function closely in these patients with the caveat that our traditional markers of kidney function can be difficult to follow. And in general, creatinine may not be a good marker in these patients in the setting of declining GFR because of hemodilutional effects of the priming circuit and the priming solutions. So what I've gathered so far is that we have many opportunities inside of cardiorenal syndrome to explore other podcast episodes. And for now, we'll just keep in mind that these patients are incredibly high risk for acute kidney injury, and we need to watch them closely. Absolutely. Something we already mentioned is that, of course, those patients who are in cardiac arrest are, are at increased risk of AKI. Any particular clinical pearls that you want to mention about that population? When you talk about specifically cardiac arrest patients, I think the conundrum here is that we're taking a lot of measures and other populations to prevent injury, but at this point, the majority of the injury has been done during a period of low flow state where the kidneys were exposed to hypoxia. And this may manifest days or even longer after the injury, but we do see this in the greater majority of our cardiac arrest populations, with the literature saying it's about 60 to 80% in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. We do know that development of AKI is a well-known predictor for poor neurologic outcome after these events, so it is something that we also keep in mind when we're monitoring the kidney function of these patients. But unfortunately, supportive care is really the only intervention we can provide. A lot of research has been done in this area to prevent further organ injury, and they've been inconclusive. Oh, wow. Maybe when I had thought about this previously, I would think about your renal injury as a marker of your overall perfusion and specifically the perfusion of your brain. Is that the way that you think about it also, or do you think it's more of an independent indicator? Yeah, I think that that's really what it comes down to is we're looking at end organ injury as a response to this low flow state. And so if your kidney function is not improving, then we can assume that other organs and their microvasculature has been affected as well. So we've covered a lot about cardiac patients today, and that's obviously very important, but there are other types of sick children in the ICU. Let's move on to another big bucket, talking about those septic patients. When patients with sepsis come in and they have an AKI, do you typically think of that as pre-renal or intrinsic renal, or is it much more complicated than that? Of course it's complicated. <laughs> 
sepsis is very complicated and it's not as well understood as we would like it to be. It is pre-renal. If you think of it, you think the first thing that comes to your mind is that decreased renal perfusion, hence hypovolemia. But that is not the end of it all. There's a lot of other factors that come into play. I think some organisms, some bacterial organisms can directly cause renal injury. Like we know the streptococcal species or candida can directly damage the renal parenchyma. So they can cause injury that way. The other mechanism is the immune pathway. Immune mechanisms come into play. They destroy the bacterial pathogenic membranes. And that may also compromise the innocent endothelium in the process. The capillary leak is what we talk about. When the endothelial structure of the capillaries changes, it leads to leakage of the fluid into the interstitial spaces and the inflamed endothelium may have further decrease in its reactivity to vasoconstrictive agents. I think those are the factors that come to mind. Molly, am I missing anything else in the renal injury caused by sepsis? No, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I always like to think about it as the immune system has a great mechanism in place for destroying our pathogens, right? So we think of the membrane attack complexes we learn about in med school that really create holes in the membranes of our bacteria, but those can also create holes essentially in the endothelium in the process, which is causing this leakiness. And we always talk about third spacing where we have volume, but it's not remaining in the vasculature and it's leaking into this quote-unquote third space, which was actually coined as a non-functional compartment of the body where fluids they thought would accumulate during surgery. But we know that this is to be the interstitium, essentially. But you know, on top of that, you have inflamed endothelium, which causes your reduced reactivity to any kind of vasoconstricting agents. It also causes altered signaling of your cellular components like your platelets and your leukocytes which cause aggregation and you see microthrombi forming in sepsis. And this can occur in multiple different organs, even especially within the kidney. And so you can have decreased blood flow at the macrovesicular level and the microvesicular level as well. And so this is the difference between a hypovolemic patient with low urine output bump in their creatinine and a septic patient with low urine output bump in their creatinine is that you expect much more direct renal injury from microthrombi, from the the interstitial edema and things like that. Correct. So hypovolemic shock versus septic shock, the difference in the renal injury is what you're trying to Yeah, and you may see with your run-of-the-mill hypovolemic patient, you give them volume and they improve. That's not necessarily going to be the case with your septic patient as it's not going to remain in your effective circulation. All right. And then the other one of the big five that you guys had mentioned was oncology patients. And so how do we think about our oncology patients and protecting their kidneys? So this is a particularly high-risk group, and it's also heterogeneous in that you have your solid tumor malignancies, you also have your hematologic malignancies, and there's some overlap and some differences between the two. But essentially, when I think of hemog patients, I think of a few big buckets of why they have kidney injury. Number one is going to be your chemotherapy. Then you could have components of tumor lysis in certain populations, these patients generally have a need for IV contrast, and there's you know much literature to support that this is harmful for the kidneys, though I know there's, it is a little bit controversial at this time. And then they are at high risk for infection, and they have a lot of sepsis rule out, so therapies come into play with here too. 
When I think about chemo, there are many agents that are implicated or may cause some degree of AKI, but I like to think of the C's that are bad for your kidneys. So you have your cisplatin and your carboplatin, which are nephrotoxic, but then also cyclophosphamide causes hemorrhagic cystitis, so may cause a post-renal injury as well. And then other agents that we commonly use include methotrexate, iphosphamide, and adriamycin. Tumor lysis, on the other hand, is the result of massive death of tumor cells due to either chemotherapy or can even occur in spontaneous lysis when the tumor burden is high. So this is common with Burkitt's, ALL, AML. And because of rapid cell turnover, you have a release of intracellular contents. And these patients will have hyperuricemia, hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and then secondary hypocalcemia as the phosphorus binds up the calcium. So yeah, definitely a lot to keep in mind with these patients. They're high risk and there's multiple different reasons that they could have an acute kidney injury. We'll have to keep in mind those C's that you mentioned. So cisplatin, carboplatin, and cyclophosphamide. And we'll have to remember to run the med list anytime we have that hemonc patient who has an acute kidney injury. So I think the other thing that we have to factor into is that after a recent chemotherapeutic regimen, they get febrile and come to the ICU and are started on broad spectrum antibiotics. Be careful about throwing vancomycin at this patient population. And they've just finished a round of chemo using the one of the big C's or atriamycin. Just keep that in your list of things to avoid if possible. Sure. Again, another opportunity for another different type of AKI for these patients. Yeah, so Molly, you mentioned tumor lysis syndrome that, of course, can be its own podcast episode, but also touched on something that's controversial in contrast-associated nephropathy. You want to explore for us what the latest evidence is about that in pediatrics and what can we know, what do we don't know about contrast-associated nephropathy? Yeah, I mean, it is somewhat controversial, though I will say a lot of the literature that I have read has been looking at patients who have normal renal function. And so a lot of our patients in the ICU, whether or not they're hemonc or not, are going to have some baseline risk for acute kidney injury, or they may already have baseline reduced glomerular filtration rate. Essentially, contrast-associated AKI is the development of kidney injury after receiving IV contrast. And as we're seeing, as we're doing more radiographic procedures, imaging techniques are being developed and we're trying to diagnose these cancers, the use of contrast has been on the rise. Therefore, we need to do more investigations in this area to determine whether or not these agents are safe, and if so, how much and how frequently. The pathophysiology is really incompletely understood, but it's probably a combination of vasoconstriction and direct renal injury from the contrast. So you're seeing this as an area of further work because our oncology patients are not previously healthy kids. We have all of these other factors. Correct. I mean, I think it's always going to be a weighing the risks and the benefits. So a lot of the times we take the risk if we know that doing this diagnostic procedure is really going to affect our treatment algorithm or our plans to escalate care. So each patient is going to be weighed separately. Maybe a discussion with your radiologist, with your oncologist, and with your ICU team about whether or not a patient would benefit from the scan. But what the evidence does show is that children who have received contrast for a CT scan, if their baseline GFR is normal, then they're likely not going to suffer significant renal injury. And if they do, it's transient. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. 
Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.